Finnish, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the big Finnish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hey. How's life with you this week? Well, the glam rock music I'm composing has not contacted any aliens, so I think I'm safe. <laughs> well, I can't think if anything was going to keep aliens away from Earth, I imagine glam rock would probably do it. So this week, we are going to be covering another couple of stories in the first season of the Lucy Miller 8th Doctor range. So that means we are going to be covering, firstly, horror of glam, glam rock. I'm going to have difficulty saying that all throughout this episode. Um, and then we are going to be covering Immortal Beloved, which I'm not going to have difficulty uh, pronouncing, hopefully. Uh, Kev, would you care to give us our summary of horror of glam rock? Sure. Horror of Glam Rock has a Doctor and Lucy land in Bramlington, 1974, where they meet uh, manager Arnold Corns, siblings Trisha and Tommy Tomorrow, failed rocker Pat Ryder and Flo the Waitress, all, den- all visiting this diner rest stop that is besieged by aliens. The aliens, turns out, are being summoned by Tommy Tomorrow's uh, music, and they're here to basically just feast on teens. <laughs> and basically, the doctor and company managed to send them away uh, only after significant loss of life. But it is a very foreign adventure for Lucy, as this is her first time realizing what the doctor does, or fully realizing, rather, what the doctor does to keep people safe. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So, um, yeah, let's let's start off with our, our drift back in time to the 70s. Um, how did you find this one? I think... It's a lot more just overall solid than Blood of the Daleks. I feel like that's where we've been doing a lot of this story is comparing it to Blood of the Daleks just because that was sort of an intro to Lucy and that like was almost sort of a wake-up call of, wow, we usually expect the Doctor Adventures to be much more solid than this from our memory of them. But that story, I mean, I just talked about last week, had a lot of problems. These two stories are much more typical of like what I remember the Doctor Adventures to be. A little bit... when. In a time when the main range is starting to get a little bit more pat and a little bit more simple, and when we jump ahead to things like Fourth Doctor Adventures and newer Big releases, they're even more sort of like standard and cliche. Uh, the Eighth Doctor Adventures, like a, they're just a bit more creativity to them. There's a bit more punch to them, a little bit more playful. And I think both these stories sort of are these very good concepts, these very interesting ideas. And I mean, Glam Rock. And it's less in your face and more beloved when it comes to being a unique story. It's just this very simple sort of aliens attack location. I mean, it is kind of based under siege in its way. But uh, the use of sort of the 70s like window dressing and the strength of the characters we meet, I think, set this one over the top for sure. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where there is a lot of this story that feels like it's familiar. But everything is just slightly canted, so it's just slightly at an angle. And it's not quite exactly what we might expect. I, I, I was rather taken with this story. Um, and especially like after after the, the, the last story that we discussed, The Blood of the Daleks, I don't I normally read reviews of stories before we record these podcasts. Um, but because we were both kind of down on it, I sort of went away. And everybody was sort of very keen on, on Blood of the Daleks. We seem to have been the... The exception that sort of proves the rule. Everybody else seemed very happy with it, and we were we were very critical of it. So, like for me, coming out of of, of Blood of the Daleks, there's no question that horror of glam rock is is so much, 
sort of stronger. And, you know, there's there's a lot of familiar elements to it. Yeah, you're right. Of course, it's basically a, a base under siege. It so happens that the base this time out, um, you know, is a service station on a motorway. Well, that's fine. It also kind of it hints at sort of, it, it's a bit, uh, it's a bit sapphire and steel. And there's a whole kind of, the way that the mystery unfolds is just not quite exactly as we might kind of expect from a, a Doctor Who story. And that's that's great. I, I like the fact that this has just got that little extra sort of spark of imagination to it. And, and the way that Lucy and the Doctor start to come together here sort of feels like it's, it's I don't know, they're clearly not that close to each other yet. Um, and obviously this is one of the adventures that helps to bring them close to each other. But it's one of those stories whereby the fact that they're not close to each other doesn't get in the way of the story. Whereas with Blood of the Daleks, the fact that they don't get on or they don't like each other, I felt really got in the way of the story. It didn't enhance it in any way. Here we have the opposite of that. We have that sense that these are two characters who are going to grow grow together. And like a lot of Lucy's reactions to the story here are, are slightly counterintuitive. So when she comes across a corpse, the thing isn't, um, you know, the fact that she's horrified by the fact that it's a dead body. It's the fact that the corpse has got these terrible sort of 70s glam rock clothes on. And just it's it, it's just got that slightly counterintuitive um, way of reading. And, and of course, it's Paul Marks and he does that kind of stuff very well. Um, but it does really add some spark to the story. Yeah, it's uh, it really does have some spark to it. I think that's sort of the overall sort of thesis of my <laughs> reaction to the story. I think it's a very standard story, but unlike Love the Daleks, there's so many elements that make it sort of spark much more like brilliantly. I think it's just has a much better grasp of these characters, the setting, and a lot of that is Paul Marg's. Just he has a great grasp of how to write Doctor Who and how to fill in those sort of details in a way that's very interesting. Um, yeah, I really like how it uses the setting. I like touches like the stylophone and the weird sound it makes. I like the glam rock score, like sort of like blasting around in the background. I think it's, uh, it's all these little touches that I think really make it feel unique when it is such a simple story as at the bare bones. Uh, I, it's just worth noting when we talk about this for the chemistry again and Smith, that these stories are produced out of order. The first Dark Adventures, that first season of Eighth Doctor Adventures. So this was actually the last story produced of these sort of four middle stories. And Blood of the Ox was first, and Human Resources is last. But the order is, I'm looking it up again, Phobos, Immortal Beloved, No More Lies, and then Horror of Glam Rock for the middle four. And I think that's sort of interesting how uh, you can sort of see them much more comfortable in the story as opposed to Blood of the Daleks. I think part of that is also, like you said, Mark's writing. He just gets a much more genial and uh, good-natured relationship between them. There's spikiness. That's what makes it sort of unique. And I think I think it gets at better what Briggs envisioned and what Lyons was going for in Blood of the Daleks than Blood of the Daleks actually does. I feel bad just comparing the two stories so much. But it really is such a refreshing thing to see Lucy and the Doctor already reach this sort of stage where they still fight and they still don't understand each other completely, but they're not like hating each other, which is so much more pleasant to be around. 
Yeah, the tensions between the characters actually feel like they derive from the characters rather than from some kind of slightly contrived, oh, well, these two people don't like each other, but they have to work together to sort of, uh, you know, escape or have to work together to get on. Uh, this feels like, it, yeah, it, it grows out of the character. And I think a lot of that does come down to Paul McGann and Sheridan Smith. They do clearly have a very good handle on their characters at this point, And they have that kind of strength that can, that can bring it along. The Doctor's got that teasing lines sort of towards the end where um uh, where lucy says oh well you know you have to admit uh, you didn't need you and then the doctor sort of says oh well you know i didn't need you then and then they kind of laugh about it and and kind of admit that actually they do need each other um and it's such a small little detail but it's a perfect little um character beat and and like to sort of pick up on what you said before is yeah i think you're right paul marks has such a good way of being able to handle this character and particularly handle the Eighth Doctor, I mean, he's got plenty of form writing for the Eighth Doctor, um, but he does really manage to capture the essence of the character here, as we've kind of experienced it over the Eighth Doctor adventures that we've been sort of covering this podcast, um, but at the same time, giving it a slightly different angle, giving it a slightly more spiky edge, and it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, obviously, Paul McGann is, is sort of great at being able to deliver to it, but just in developing that relationship between the Eighth Doctor and Lucy, we kind of, we need this story to be written by somebody who's got that strength of handle on, on the Doctor's character. And absolutely, Paul Marks has that. I think if this was a story where the writing for the Eighth Doctor was a bit weaker, um, I think we would be getting towards the point where we were thinking, ah, you know, I don't know how, how many more of these stories we might necessarily want to listen to. But he's got such a good grip on the Eighth Doctor here that we cannot help but kind of get pulled in, get pulled along. I mean, the whole sort of thesis of this story really hasn't got anything to do with the plot. Not really. This is basically a series of uh, character studies. So obviously we get the developing relationship between uh, Lucy and the Doctor. We get the familial relationship that uh, Lucy has with her aunt here. Um, and, you know, we have all these kind of other characters orbiting around them. We have the, you know, beyond brilliant Bernard Cribbins, um, you know, all these different kind of characters um, and the way that they kind of orbit and bounce off each other. That's really what this story is about. We know from our perspective going on, this is actually going to prove to be rather a, a foundational text, I suppose, of this uh, of this whole range. Um, but it's one of the reasons that it can become that is because the character work here is so strong. Yeah, absolutely. And I just think that it's like why it's so strong is because Marx has such a good grasp on it. I want to talk about the doctor again before we get into the other characters. Uh, like you said, it's so great to see him figure out how to throw that needle where the doctor is this sort of that spiky personality that they've come up with him for uh, this sort of range. I did possibly even sort of time more influenced. I, I, I don't know how heavy that was looming in sort of the producer's mind they were sort of devising this, but maybe that seems like sort of a factor of trying to edge the Eighth Doctor into more darkness as a way of sort of subtly leading into what was already established as canon on the TV show at the time. And even if it is time war influence, even if it's not, the idea of this sort of darker edge to the Eighth Doctor is something that is, again, a very hard needle to thread, but Marg really threads it here, where the Doctor is not quite the same as the main range Eighth Doctor. He's not as willing to help, not as willing to get involved, but still sort of sees it as his duty. And 
his bedside manner hasn't has sort of taken a downturn, but he's still very practical and can really bring that McGann can really bring that rage when he needs to. And I think that's an interesting side to the character. Oh no, it definitely is. And I, I really like the way that the character has developed and will continue to develop in this range. One of the things that I think this range does better than the Eighth Doctor material that we've covered so far is that I think it does give both the Doctor and and Paul McGann more range to develop the character. And I think as a result, that makes him a more interesting sort of character to listen to going through the plays. And, And that's not to suggest particularly that the previous version of the character, because we're only talking about relatively sort of mild tweaks around the edge, but I think they're mild tweaks which make a difference. Um, but, you know, it, it's not to suggest that there were, you know, terrible mistakes that were made, you know, when when uh, when we were dealing with the other stories. One of the great strengths that has always been true of the Eighth Doctor range is just how good they are at making use of Paul McGann and, and having Paul McGann being able to... Su- uh, explore feelings in the Doctor like the idea that he might have a degree of romance uh, with a companion or that there there was a real love um, between him and his companion. Those weren't particularly things which had been explored in Doctor Who before. Um, and so, you know, it, it, that range did have the advantage of getting Paul McGann to explore parts of the Eighth Doctor's character which, which we just don't normally see. And that continuation in this range but with a spikier rather than a more romantic or a more loving kind of way allows that development to continue i think it's incredibly important for this doctor because he's the least defined in terms of his televisual appearances that he still has that ability to develop and so um, when we're talking about the way that he interacts with lucy rather than the way that he interacts with charlie um it's it feels like a logical extension of the character even although the character isn't being written in precisely the same way yeah, it all—it's all within the sort of same color palette of uh, the Eighth mm. Doctor, even if they're using different colors, specifically different shades for the Eighth Doctor range compared to the main range. And I think it's a good exploration. I think we've seen other sort of Doctors in the course of the show have sort of different modes. I mean, the Sixth Doctor kind of went through a reverse relationship from his first appearances on TV, where he was very difficult and <laughs> rude to even the Child of the Time Lord season, and especially in Big Finish where they managed to soften him. And I think it's good to sort of let the actors sort of stretch and see other sides to the character. It's good to sort of have different sub-eras within a doctor's sort of lifespan on and off the screen and sort of see what else the personality, how the personality can develop. And so I, I really like how the, how this main, how the Ace Doctor Ventures range sort of deals with that. And yeah, I, I think his relationship with Lucy, it's only going to get more fascinating from here. And I'm glad we're sort of past that awkward hump and have them really settling in to this sort of very fun banter that they have. I mean, the thing is that for, for all that we were very harsh on, on Blood of the Daleks in the last episode that we recorded, um, I mean, the truth is the hump is very small here. Uh, it's only really two episodes. And, you know, as far as a bedding in period goes, that's uh, that's not that bad. I mean, there's only eight episodes in, in, in this season. So, you know, it does need to be something which has gotten over relatively quickly. Like I said, if, if, if this story didn't have such a strong handle on the Doctor, we might start questioning how far down the line we wanted to go. But the fact that they get it so quickly 
means that that's not a question we have to ask because we know it's going to get great. Um, but it's just nice that, like, yeah, it's not a really big hump. Um, and the fact that we're able to get such a nice, strong relationship between Lucy and the Eighth Doctor here is is just it's a testament to how quickly this range kind of comes into focus and especially when it comes to uh, lucy to sort of move on slightly more here as well i think um she gets so much more opportunity to display um some range here especially because she's on familiar territory and yet also not quite familiar territory so the way that she's kind of slightly uh, condemning of how tatty the kind of early 70s were or how ridiculous they look or all the rest of it. It, it stops this whole story becoming a, just a nostalgia fest or a kind of wink, wink, here comes the, the, the old references kind of thing. Um, with a story which is set in the 1970s, particularly one kind of set around the kind of tacky glamour of, of glam rock, it's really important, I think, that this doesn't just defend, descend into a sort of slightly tedious nostalgia fest and and the fact that lucy is uh so near to home yet not quite home and the fact that she's able to offer a slightly more cynical perspective or a slightly more um jaundiced view of that era is a really nice contrast with the doctor's kind of enthusiasm and his enthusiasm here is really kind of infectious because we know palmer Paul McGann can do kind of, you know, limitless enthusiasm. That's kind of that's kind of his ballpark. Um, but the idea that it's undercut by, by Lucy's slightly more cynical or, you know, everything looks brown, everything looks a bit tacky or whatever, it, it, it stops it just becoming that sort of self-indulgent, uh, yeah, nostalgia fest. And that's a really, really good use of, of Lucy's character. And it gives uh sheridan smith the range uh to do things that she just simply didn't have the chance to do in in blood of the daleks so it's it's really good to see how quickly this range has managed to get a, a real handle on how to use that character uh to, to benefit the story yeah i completely agree and yeah i mean we're i think lucy is great in this story and she's even better in the next one i'm yeah i've i was been saying i'm really excited to see where she goes from here uh, I do want to get into some of the other characters, though, before we move off this story, because I think uh, Mar- Marx has got a really great cast here. I mean, we talked we talked briefly about Pat and how she becomes a more foundational character, but right here, yeah, even just in this one story, I mean, I think Lindsay's Hardwick's performance is fantastic, and I think the dynamic of Lucy sort of not knowing the rules of time travel, which sort of speaks to her experience, and then having that sort of character play like, oh, I have to realize that my life is not going to amount to much because here is the evidence. I think that's a fantastic little angle for it. Oh, it definitely is. I, that that Lucy has that devastating line. I think it's about two-thirds of the way through when she says to Pat, um, oh, you're nothing. And then she completely misunderstands. What she means is she's not a famous musician, she's not on top of the pops, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and and Pat takes it as this kind of absolute condemnation of the fact that she never, in a very heavy inverted commas, she never achieved anything. She didn't become famous or, or successful as a musician. And it's such a devastating line that's delivered completely innocently. It's completely because Lucy is so naive about the way that, that time travel works. 
and just doesn't have a handle on how you can speak to people. Um, and it's such a... And also just because she's young. She didn't mean it as a, you know, a condemnation of everything that Pat's achieved. She just meant, oh, well, you know, you didn't become the thing you want. But it's such a... There's such an honesty in that line and, and such a, a brilliant way of, of sort of... In, encapsulating, I suppose, everything that that kind of Lucy has here. She she is a time traveler. She doesn't understand the rules. Uh, she is dealing with family members. She she doesn't have the the tact or or kind of like I suppose the emotional sophistication, if you want to put it that way, um, that allow that would allow her to kind of communicate what she meant successfully. And of course, immediately she regrets it. But uh, and it it leads to kind of more drama further along in the episode. But it's just such a good indication of how Paul Marks knows how to, to, to write for these characters. And, and of course, yeah, I, I, of course I agree with you when you say that uh, Lindsay Harburg is, is, is great because she really is. Pat is such a, a presence in this episode. I think even given that we also have Bernard Cribbins in this episode, now obviously from our perspective, we know that Bernard Cribbins has a rather more significant role in Doctor Who. Um, so it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, he's not a particularly sympathetic character here. Um, Arnold Corns is is, is a, a bit of a bugger, really. Um, but I think even given that we have somebody of Bernard Cribbins' statue here, Lindsay Hardwick kind of really finds a way of... Um, I don't want to say she dominates. That's not quite the right way. But she really finds a way to make an impact with the character of Pat. I think way above and beyond what's uh, necessarily on the page. I think she's absolutely fantastic here. Yeah, it's a fantastic performance. And it's yeah one of many great performances in this story. I like It really is sort of... Shocked isn't the right word, because of course, like we know Big Finish generally has a good eye for talent. But yeah, I mean, it's such a, it is just a great, it really does sort of take you by surprise when you compare it to known quantities of McGannett Smith or Cribbins. Uh, yeah, and yeah, Hardwick is just incredibly good and really only has the, uh, this one role in Big Finish. So it's, it's uh, fantastic that they've got to use her at least the once, but yeah. Well, absolutely. And I think the way that the whole cast is able to come together um, really is one of the sort of major strengths of the story. Like even Eunice Stubbs' flow. I mean, it's it's not the it's it, it's it's not the most glamorous part, I suppose, in the whole story. I guess people know Eunice Stubbs now more from the fact that she's in Sherlock. She's, she's Mrs. Hudson in the in the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, uh, Sherlock stories. Um and she's a really good actor, um, and she's sort of she's here in, in what amounts to a comparatively minor role, really. But that's kind of the, the what's good about this story is that even in sort of relatively minor roles like like Flo, you've got like really sort of good caliber actors who are able to invest in it, and that's always kind of what the classic show did best. You know, you would have these kind of people with like 30 year stage careers turning up to you know play a man in a rubber suit or whatever it's very much in that kind of tradition um and I, that's just sort of true throughout this this like Brenner Cribbins is a perfect example you know obviously um you know this predates his appearances on screen 
um, you know, as 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 uh, the right honourable uh, Mr. Noble Senior, and he's just great here. He's such a good actor, but he's such a really good actor turning up to do what amounts to you know a bit of a, a bit part in an audio series that you know aimed at sort of dedicated fanboys like you and me. And he's but he's such a good actor, and he can really pull it off. And it's just one of the strengths of this this story is that it is just so incredibly well cast. Absolutely. I just want to talk about Flo. I think it's such a great character because, like you said, it could be such a cliche, the sort of, oh, the waitress Ooh. at the rest stop who is just sort of, like, it's a very that much type of personality, the sort of chattiness and everything. But she's yeah. used for so many empathetic moments. And I think that's what the word that strikes up me. The empathy in Marx's writing and the empathy in Stubbs's performance Uh creates an empathetic character. It's She is like the sort of sounding board for everyone else for all the chaos going on. And though she is the one character doesn't really serve a plot function, like the story is pretty essential. She's so essential to it just in how she relates to everyone else. Oh yeah, no, she absolutely is. And she has that, that, that humanity that uh, makes the whole thing come together. And, uh, you know, I mean, if we are talking about the, the sort of the plot here, which is a fairly kind of standard... Um, you know, alien invasion story. Oh, they they love us and want to come and, and, and impart their knowledge. Oh, they're actually evil and, and, and that's not true at all. Um, it's, you know, I mean, there, there isn't really a more sort of bog standard alien invasion story in, in all of Doctor Who, but having characters like Flo who do have that essential humanity and who are like, like even, I mean, it ought to be such a cliche that that Arnold Corns is prepared to sacrifice himself at the end and realizes that he's been a terrible person and you know at one point he's more concerned about his fancy car than he is about human lives but right at the end he does the right thing and it ought to be such a cliche and I suppose to an extent it is but it kind of because the story and because the acting is so strong it, the story completely gets away with such kind of like a pat ending and sorry, that's not that's not meant to be a pun. Um, but it gets away with such a, a a standard ending, let's say it that way. Um, and we have, um, you know, yeah, the noble sacrifice in inverted commas. Now, I know that you and I have both criticised previous stories in Big Finish for 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 going for such a an obvious ending, but it kind of works here. And and again and again, it's just simply down to the strength of the cast. I, I, that's why I said, you know, when we started this. Uh, discussion that it's really much more about character pieces than it is about kind of you know here comes an alien it, it that just really doesn't matter um i suppose we have to also mention um stephen gately as as tommy tomorrow um if for no other reason than kind of um he, he was uh, a musician he died um and this is one of the very sort of few opportunities he ever had to sort of act or appear in anything um and he's fine and there's nothing else to say about it, but I feel that we ought to acknowledge it, really. Uh, yeah, he's all right. Yeah, uh, Tommy and Trisha are probably the least interesting characters. Uh, they, I mean, Tommy, he's fulfilling a role very spelled out, which is to sort of be the one, the conduit for these aliens, to be creepy, to play his stylophone, and then to have this sort of arc of realizing he's been misled. And then Trisha, likewise, is such like a very clearly spelled out purpose to basically die and motivate Tommy against Arnold and uh, make Arnold realize he's been a bad person. And it's 
like it's almost too laid out and simple in a way these other characters aren't the way the other everyone else is sort of more interesting or has more going on so yeah like you said the, the performances are okay like they don't drag the story down when the characters serve their function well but you're right they do stand out in contrast to how well developed everyone else is and i think i think it really goes to show if you're trying to make a doctor who story work with a very simple standard premise i mean I suppose the glam rock angle and setting is like a little bit of flavor, but really the way to make these sort of basic Doctor Who stories work is to invest in the characters. And we have, at least in the case of characters like Pat and Flo and Arnold, a really good investment in the characters. Well, I think that's kind of a, a perfect summary of this story, really. Yeah, it's it's, it's all about the characters and the characters are, are what drive it and make it work. Um, I think probably for horror of glam rock i'm still struggling to say it horror of glam rock it's really difficult when you roll your r's um i think we can leave it there for that one and move on to the far easier to pronounce immortal beloved so um kev would you care to give us our summary for this one sure in immortal beloved uh, the doctor and lucy stumble upon these two young lovers about to commit suicide it turns out they are clones of these much older humans who have landed on this colony They present themselves as Greek gods, and they basically clone themselves to find younger bodies to sort of implant their minds into when they come of age. So these gods, Zeus, Hera, and Ares, do these sort of mind-swapping tricks, and the two young lovers, uh, Kalkin and Sarati, try to escape. It's mostly a lot of philosophical discussion, as the Doctor and Lucy sort of understand this world, how it works, and try to break starting Kalkin free of this cycle where their bodies are sort of cloned and reused and cloned and reused over and over again by these same thousand-year-old personalities. And eventually, both Sarati and Kalkin fake being body-swapped. Sarati gives up the game for some stabbing very quickly, but Kalkin manages to keep up the ruse, and that lets the old gods die, and then they can go on impersonating their predecessors and hopefully create a better society fantastic thank you very much so yeah this is um definitely more i guess traditional uh in terms of the doctor just sort of turning up somewhere and and getting on with the story so how did you find this one compared to the last one you say it's more traditional because in terms of what the doctor does but it's such a weird story there's no running in corridors mm. no capture recapture no monster aliens chasing people like i said it's a lot of philosophical discussion and the philosophy is very plain. Cloning yourself and then implanting your mind to the clone that's killing it is bad. The story never really wavers on that. But at the same time, it's it's a lot of sort of getting into this world and this sort of sick system built up. And then there's a little bit of, like, not thriller in the traditional sense of they're being stalked, they're being chased, they're being spied on, but sort of how are they going to escape the situation where they're surrounded by guards with guns and they these sort of doomed lovers are going to be wiped in favor of these older people and it sort of raises questions of how far will you go to preserve your mind and avoid death and it's just yeah it's a very interesting story i think it is such a big swing and that sort of lack of like structure and um action is sort of makes it a little dry but I can't help but be like very fascinated by it. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. And I think the fact that it is so resistant to the idea of following standard Doctor Who tropes 
is is one of the strengths of of the story when i say this feels a little bit more traditional um i'd simply mean that well we're back in an outer space setting where we're sort of traveling in space and time and all those kind of things um but it's definitely a story which benefits from like the last one its investment in in characters and once again we have a whole selection of of really great actors you know turning up to kind of have this weird philosophical discussion um and i'm going to basically just start with uh ian mcneese partly because he's sort of uh mostly well known i suppose for his portrayal of churchill now but also because he's really good in this and it kind of flags up to me even more frustratingly why he's kind of wasted playing churchill on the tv show because he's a really good actor and i think him playing zeus here kind of proves that it shows how strong he is that he doesn't need to just sort of fall back on on um you know ticks and gels of an established historical character but he's just really good in his own right and i i i think the portrayal of of zeus here and the kind of battle of wits and battle of philosophies that he has with the doctor it's just such a a good demonstration of of what you can do when you have an actor that's really gifted and is given something interesting to do with it and it's just yeah it's just really frustrating to think like he's this good in 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 uh, immortal beloved and he, you know he's he's reduced a series of cliched ticks on on the tv screen it, it just makes the tv version of uh, what he does feel so much more wasted but he's great here yeah i think he's fantastic um I, like the whole cast, I think is very good. It's very good to fantastic. It's they're all like have such difficult roles to play. Like it's very easy, I think, to get a Doctor Who character and sort of slum it when they're just oh, scream at the monster and run away and talk very authoritatively if you're <laughs> that kind of character. But and here it's like a lot of heavy exposition, a lot of very heavy like dialogue, a lot of emotion has to play out, and all these people do such a great job. It's really a strong cast overall. And it makes these characters, like even the obviously abominable characters, like Zeus and Hera and Ares, like, I mean, these, there's no sympathy for them at any point in the story, but you still are sort of drawn into them because of the strength of the performances. Well, yeah, and it's those performances again which help to anchor this whole thing. And. Given that Blood of the Daleks is a very kind of traditional one-two of um, Doctor Who storytelling in order to get people kind of into the range, it's amazing how quickly they simply this this range simply abandons that approach in order to to do two you know really detailed character studies, and the sense that the the characters here are, are again sort of really investing in this philosophical discussion rather than like you mentioned running up and down corridors or all kind of the usual um the usual sort of rote parts of doctor who is one of the things that makes this um such an interesting piece i don't know how much the philosophy um quite stands up one of the one of the difficulties with any kind of discussion uh, when it comes to sort of morality or philosophy like this in Doctor Who is that we're discussing something which isn't actually possible uh, and so there is a slight abstraction to the way that the philosophy uh, is kind of unraveled you know obviously it's not possible to clone somebody and then transfer your mind into their body so the ethics of doing that are very much abstract but at the same time it becomes incredibly easy to invest within the play within those discussions because 
the acting is so strong because the writing is so strong and because ultimately the final kind of moral arbiters aren't the doctor and they aren't Zeus or they aren't Ganymede or whoever what they are is is uh, very much left up to to the listener and the doctor has a clear moral point of view here i think but i don't think that it's one which goes completely uncontested um and i think there is enough wiggle room here to to sort of suggest uh, alternative approaches or, or alternative philosophies could be as valid as, as the stance the doctor takes here. Again, it's abstract because they're not; it's not a real thing. But that's fine. A good story should give you the the scope to be able to decide. Well, actually, you know, maybe maybe Zeus does have a point, or maybe Hera is right, and and those things make such a big difference because they give a sense of scale to the character and they give a sense of scale to the society. Yeah, I think it's important that. Like, we have these sort of very moral groundings in the Doctor and Lucy. And they are, like, sort of very much, like, I mean, opposed to this sort of mind-wiping and transfer thing. And I think Lucy works as a great sort of intro and foil of the story, where she can sort of call things out directly, where the Doctor's trying to take a more subtle approach. And she can very cleanly sort of... I mean, she does a companion thing where she's asking questions and getting answers for us, the audience, to understand. But... I think it, what helps is that Lucy has such a strong viewpoint in all of these things and such a great wit about her that it doesn't feel like exposition. It feels like true character beats that advance the story forward. Well, I think this is only the second story that we've covered by Jonathan Clements, who wrote this. And the other one was Sympathy for the Devil, uh, which is part of the Unbound range. Um, and I think that what you just said, I think that's true of uh, Sympathy for the Devil as well. It's the fact that we have kind of strong characters who have their own perspectives and who have this kind of like they have their own genuine reasons for believing what they believe right down to the inclusion of the master, which should really be, you know, we should be past the idea where we're asked to, you know, look at uh, sort of, you know, the master's degree of moral equivalence of whatever. Uh, but this is clearly one of the strengths that, that Jonathan Clements has as a writer. And so I really admire the fact that, you know, given this is only the second story that we've covered of his, um, that this is, um, you know, clearly part of his makeup when it comes to, to being a writer he's really interested in in taking ideas and interrogating the ideas that he has from different character perspectives that's far more interesting than more corridors or or, or, or more you know talking alien computers or whatever um this whole society is constructed in a very um loose fashion we don't really spend any time exploring it at all beyond the scope of the sort of technology and the questions that that technology brings up um and so all the detail of the the um the colony that we have here is is very much up i think to the listener to fill in and you know this could be a this could be a varos or it could be a you know whatever it could be any planet but that doesn't matter because that's not what this is about and so the fact that the focus remains so tightly on these characters and how they how they interrogate the world around them is far more interesting than trying to do kind of standard bits of world building with uh, and over here we have the town square and over there we have the place of execution or you know whatever it happens to be it's a far more intelligent approach to, to sort of building up the society yeah something i haven't really mentioned yet is how both these stories are like only an hour long and the, so the traditional after who story is you know the sort of for, for, for Big Finish is a sort of four hour or two hour four part uh, 
thing. And one of the Daleks, uh, two parts, but it's two hours as well, has that sort of full length. Whereas, I know we've criticized fourth Doctor Adventure stories in the past. I think the one hour running time is a little short for a lot of them. But both Glam Rock and Immortal Beloved really make use out of that, I think, sub-50 minutes in both case runtime. Not even using the sort of full hour allowed for them on a CD. And both just really get in and get out. I think by having such, in Glam Rock's case, such a bare-bones story, and Immortal Beloved's case, not much of a incident-filled story at all, more of a discussion than an actual uh, plot. And I think in both cases, it really helps to have them be character studies and to really pick these points of emphasis. We're going to make these characters first and really dig into each one's psychology rather than overwhelm itself with, like you said, like not necessarily world building and uh, stalling. Instead, it just really is an efficient story. And I mean, I mean that in sort of the best way. It's gets all it needs to say out there and it doesn't really focus itself on details that aren't important. No, I think you're completely correct. And one of the reasons I think that this is such a a strong story is it just does keep showing how we don't have to keep conforming to the same template. You know, there's been quite a few um, big finish stories that we've covered that have really resisted the temptation to fall into the kind of the more obvious uh, structure of a Doctor Who story. And even this being sort of, say, 45, 50 minutes, whatever it is, long. I mean, that's obviously the same structure that we have when it comes to the new series. Most of the stories are are self-contained and most of them are sort of 45 to 50 minutes long. And that's fine. Obviously, that's clearly become a viable way for the story to work. But... um, the complete disinterest that the story has, or sorry, I should say complete uninterest, completely uninterested in uh, sort of following the standard patterns within that kind of time is what makes this come alive. If we take something like when we spoke about um, Farewell Great Macedon, which is a vastly long story, you know, it's a six-parter, uh, and uh, it, you know, but it does so much with its running time, and even although it's mirroring the runtime and the episodic structure of a Hartnell historical, it does so much within that that isn't just running up and down corridors. This time the Doctor's on holiday for a week, or you know, kind of like the, the cliches of that era. And and I think that's exactly what Immortal Beloved does. It's just not interested in, in replicating the same old story beats. And, you know, we've been, both of us have been so critical of uh, some of the modern stories and the more recent stories that we've covered in Big Finish because so many of them are just kind of, eh. And yeah, of course, the Fourth Doctor range is particularly guilty of that. Um, it's not that they're bad, but it's just that it likes, it's the same structure. It's the same beats. It's the same, you know, again and again and again. And stories like this, which are still full cast stories, they're not, you know, it's not like Companion Chronicles, but they're, they're still full cast stories, but they don't have to fall back into this kind of lazy um, structure. Like, yeah, like when we covered something like Frostfire, it's exactly the same thing. It doesn't feel the need to do that because it's, it, that story isn't about the, the sort of most obvious uh, beats of Doctor Who. It's about exploring one character and a particularly underserved character as well. Um, and that's what we have here. And it just makes such a difference to see like both of these stories... Um, Sorry, I know I'm going on a bit. I promise I'll get to the point eventually. Um, but both of these stories 
aren't just replicating here's the thing you like and like particularly for glam rock that would be so easy it's the 70s doctor who was around in the 70s it could be such a a tick box exercise but it's not it intentionally skews itself and that's what this story does as well and it just makes them so much easier to engage with they're so much more interesting and, and so much more challenging yeah i mean i can't sum it up better myself uh the only other thing i really want to talk about this story is lucy I think I mentioned her before. We want to circle back to her. I think she has something very interesting. In this story, which is almost destroy the TARDIS, and I think that's such a interesting move for a companion to do, like to very selflessly sacrifice her way home in order to sort of because she sees if she destroys the TARDIS, then the machine can't be fixed, and this sort of cycle of destruction will end. And I think it really shows how sort of new she is, and. Like, she doesn't have the same reverence for it that the Doctor does. And I think that just is, like, one example of a trend in both these stories, but particularly this one, of how that sort of lack of reverence, that lack of, like, knowing the rules, really makes her an interesting companion. Uh, like, so, without the Doctor sort of correct her, she is, like, she's very blunt, she's very pragmatic, and it leads to sort of these sort of scenes where she is sort of speaking truth to power in a way that, is that feels very refreshing yeah i think that is kind of the perfect way to describe her and you know particularly i mean maybe it is unfair to compare it to charlie but i'm, I'm gonna do it anyway so oh well never mind um but you know charlie herself felt like a breath of fresh air when she was first introduced because she was this kind of um spunky uh sort of no-nonsense Edwardian adventurous um and yeah, it's it's one of the great things about Lucy is that she also feels like a fresh a breath of fresh air, but it's not again just replicating the same beats that came from Charlie. So even though she yeah, like you said, doesn't have the reverence for the TARDIS, or she's not just kind of going to walk into the same here comes the companion uh, sort of beats, it still manages to be a distinctive um, approach for this companion even although, you know, functionally, it's not all that mil a million miles away from how Charlie was also brought in and I sort of challenged the Doctor as well. And I think uh, Charlie and the Eighth Doctor settled down much quicker than Charlie and... Uh, sorry, than the Eighth Doctor and Lucy did. But that's fine. I like the fact that these stories are taking their time before they become fully integrated. I like the fact that they're maintaining that kind of character development over multiple stories and it's just it's so yeah refreshing i think that's exactly the right word so yeah to sum up i mean we haven't really talked about much of the other characters in detail because they generally just sort of serve the one plot function they're the young lovers they're sort of the brainwashed upstart in ganymede's case uh, hair and aries are sort of the old guard on zeus's side and they sort of explore different aspects of this sort of messed up relationship they all have with their own clones but, I mean, they, we don't really need to get into the detail. These characters, and maybe another flaw compared to Glam Rock, these characters aren't quite as intricate and fascinating in and of themselves. But they just paint a picture of this whole world that is so great. And it is that base level of world building and great performances buoying it that really make the story stand out. Yeah, I completely agree with all of that. Um, I, I think it's one of those stories that really has to be like we've been talking about it for about half an hour now or whatever it is, but I think it is really one of these stories that just needs to be sort of sat down and listened to. And, and for all that we can talk about it, I think the most important um, thing anyone can do with this story is, yeah, 
sit down and listen to it and, and, and see what you think. And obviously that's true of every story we review, but at the same time, there is something that feels very specific to this story that makes you think, um, yeah, maybe I'll go away and listen to it again. Maybe maybe I missed something, or maybe there is a discussion there that I didn't quite pick up on in the first time. I think this is only the second time I've listened to Mortal Beloved, um, and I definitely got more out of it this time than I did the first time. Um, and I think that's what a really good story should be. It should be something that you're able to revisit. It should be something that you 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 know you pick up on and 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 you know it makes you think and 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 there's more in it the more often you listen to it and that's that's yeah that's just good writing. All right, I think that sort of concludes our discussion of horror of glam rock and immortal beloved, and now we want to start a sort of new segment because me and Gigi were talking off mic about like a lot of that we've been reading and watching recently. And uh, we've sort of wanted to, I guess, sort of share the recommendations with you, the listeners, because we think it sort of would be a nice little extra bonus discussion to talk about uh, interesting things, probably sci-fi or otherwise genre, given our inclinations, and we know the inclinations of the people listening to this, but maybe not always, but it will be sort of this week. Uh, we're just doing a little media recommendations and, we hope you check them out. Uh, I'll start with a, a show I've been loving. I've almost finished, and I'm a little behind on it because it aired from March to May. A show called Vagrant Queen, which aired 10 episodes on the Sci-Fi Channel in America and can still be found on their app. I think it's still making its way to the UK. Hasn't quite reached there yet. But it's this fantastic little space opera show that has a very sort of Farscape quality to sort of the guts and humor of it. Not No Muppets, unfortunately, but otherwise just a great sort of fun, like low budget, like low budget, but still colorful and great to look at, like designs of aliens and settings, a great sense of humor. It's about this woman who is sort of going to be queen of this alien monarchy in another galaxy. And then the monarchy is overthrown by a sort of despotic republic who sort of tries to take it over and absorb it into themselves. It's a little Firefly-esque in that respect, too. And she has then spent the last sort of 10 years of her life being a bounty hunter and living with fringe society when people from her planet tell her to come back and sort of rise up against what has taken over her former place. But she, and it's interesting, though, because like, unlike a lot of the other space stories that space monarchs, she's, this is a very anti-monarchy show. She has no interest in being a ruler. She just wants to see it freed from sort of the despotic conditions it's in. And she teams up with a, another first comparison, very John Crichton-like character. It's a human stranded from Earth who gives a lot of pop culture references. And then the third member of their party is a space mechanic. There's a snarky robot as well. It's a very fun show. There's a lot of, it's a very light touch, a lot of cute humor, a lot of great space designs and look and feel to it. Very sort of grungy look, very colorful and fun action. Definitely taking cues, not just from Farscape, also sort of Guardians of the Galaxy and uh, all of other recent sci-fi space opera. And yeah, it's just a great show. I especially love the the seventh episode is a great sort of thriller on a train. The eighth episode is a straight up uh, riff on the movie Clue complete with a ton of references to that movie in a murder mystery style. And my only complaint is that it's only 10 episodes. Uh, there's an overarching story that takes over the show a lot, 
and it feels like twists that come in episode five should have been come in episode 18. You really long for the days where this could have been a full 22 episodes where you got some of these characters hanging out rather than just the 10 episode model TV is so used to nowadays. So yeah, I mean, that's my one complaint. I wish there was more of it. Please check out Vagrant Queen. Um, we were talking just before uh, we started recording uh, when we were discussing doing this segment and um, Kev mentioned that he was going to talk about uh, Vagrant Queen and full confession, I had not heard of this show. Now, I don't I'm, I don't think it's reached the UK yet. Maybe it's maybe it has or maybe it's just about to. Um, but uh, I felt completely caught in the hop because there's a genre show out there that sounds exactly like the sort of thing I would love. And I didn't know about it. And so I, like, if nobody else takes a recommendation away from this, I'm taking a recommendation away from this because I'm really going to, uh, that sounds like such a cool show. And that anything which even suggests Farscape to me is, is going to be absolutely, uh, you know, on my radar. So yeah, um, I'm a hundred percent sure that uh, Kev's recommendations are top notch and I will be the very first one to be uh, taking it from you. So uh, great. Um, I'm going to go in a completely different direction. Uh, I'm going to recommend a book, uh, and the book is called Broken Greek, uh, and it's by uh, a writer called uh, P- uh, Pete, and I hope I pronounced this correct, uh, Paphides. Um, and it's a book about a, a Cypriot immigrant uh, growing up in uh, England, in Birmingham, uh, in the 1970s. So it kind of, it sort of faintly links in with the horror of glam rock, if you want to draw a line there. Um, but it's because we were talking about horror of glam rock that, that this kind of came to mind. Um, and it's about his kind of experiences uh, growing up in England um, and, and sort of absorbing the culture and, and starting to feel, um, I guess, more English than than uh, from his sort of Greek Cypriot background. Uh, it's a really interesting book. It's fantastically well written. Um, I can't really recommend it highly enough. Um, it's a very kind of detailed um, description of sort of those kind of very difficult years between sort of maybe about seven or eight um, up to maybe about 14. And it's just got such an attention to detail and it evokes um, so much of really what we were just talking about in in, uh, Horror of Glam Rock. It's all the detail of that era without it just being kind of unfettered nostalgia. It's absolutely not nostalgic for that period of time, but it is an extremely kind of detailed and, and intricate sort of discussion and exploration of having grown up through it. I'm almost old enough to remember some of it. I was born in 1973, so I do remember bits of Glam Rock and bits of the 1970s. And this book does such a great kind of evocation of of that era and and what it was like coming up through these incredibly strange, um, weird kind of dissonant periods, but also doing it from that slightly outsider perspective, which is brought by the fact that that he's a a Greek Cypriot immigrant. So the book, yeah, it's called Broken Greek and it's by uh, Pete Pafidis and I just cannot recommend it to you highly enough. It's astonishingly well written. It's just a really brilliant character piece and it comes with my very highest recommendation. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And yeah, I mean, I will definitely take that recommendation myself as well. And I just wanted to add one more thing. Uh, I did look it up. Vagrant Queen has been airing in like a obscure time slot in the UK, but on since April. So it's probably wrapped its first season by now. You can probably find it on Sci-Fi UK, I think it said. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, 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 it's only got seven viewers, so I'm not surprised yeah. that I didn't know about it. Okay, fair enough. Okay, good to know. Thank you. But yeah, that, so yeah, no excuse for not checking out all UK listeners as well, for sure. 
Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I think we can probably leave our discussions there for this week. Uh, Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Certainly. You can email us at TalkingWhoToYou at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. And JG's writings are at jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot scott. Please like, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, next week we will be remaining with Lucy and the Eighth Doctor and we'll be exploring the next two stories in the range. So we are going to be covering Phobos and No More Lies. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. <laughs>